Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who are the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on episode 79, 6500 BC. Previously, on the final history, we mentioned that agriculture arrived in Thessaly, in northern Greece from Asia Minor. And we also discussed the first writing in the world. We'll stay in Thessaly for the start of this episode and focus on our first Neolithic culture in Europe, the Sesclo culture, 6500 to 4400 BC. The oldest fragments researched at the village of Sesclo near Volos in central Greece place the culture's development as far back as 6850 BC. However, there is a 660 year plus or minus margin of error, so uh, that's why we put it here. This early part of the Sesclo culture is known as Proto-Sesclo and Pre-Sesclo, showing an advanced agriculture with a very early usage of pottery that rivals those found in the Near East. A 
the same time. People built villages on hillsides near fertile valleys, growing wheat and barley, keeping herds of sheep and goats, as well as cattle, pigs and dogs, like any other Neolithic culture we have featured. Houses contained one or two rooms that were built from wood or mud brick in the early period, before being transformed into adobe with stone foundations later on. In the next millennium BC, houses contained two levels with a clear intention of urbanism. Small town even, perhaps. Lower levels of proto-sesclo lacked pottery, but people began to develop fine glazed earthenware cups and bowls that were decorated with geometric paintings in red or brown. Then, new styles were incorporated, leading by the end of the period to flame motifs that were used as far away as Western Macedonia. There are many similarities between Asia Minor pottery and Greek Early Neolithic pottery at this time, but there also seems to be similarities with early pottery from the Near East. However, Asia Minor vessels seem to be deeper and open bowls are completely absent in Anatolia. Very rare pottery from levels 11 and 12 at Katalhöyük resembles the very coarse earthenware of the early Neolithic one from Sesco. A significant trait of this culture was the abundance of female statuettes that were often pregnant. They were connected to the prehistoric fertility cult, as mentioned in previous episodes during the Upper Paleolithic, by those who liked the prehistoric fertility cult. These sculptures are present across the Balkans and in most of the Danubian Neolithic cultures for many, many thousands of years. One thing is that the sesclo culture was very crucial to the expansion of the Neolithic and farming into the rest of Europe. It influenced the Carnovo and Stavcevo in the Balkans and possibly the Cardium pottery culture of the southern Mediterranean. As for population, it was likely to have been somewhere in the region of 1000 to 5000 in 5000 BC at the site of the village of Sesclo. In uh, 2001 AD, the village of Sesclo had a population of 906 people. Then it's time to talk about the Cardium pottery culture, 6400 to 5500 BC. As mentioned previously, the Sesclo culture may have influenced the Cardium pottery culture that extended across the southern Mediterranean between 6400 and 5500 BC. The name is derived from the imprinting of the clay using the shell of a cockle, particularly the variety known as Cardium edulis. An alternative name known as impressed ware has was given by some archaeologists because impressions were also made by using a nail or comb in addition to the usage of cockle shells. The earliest impressed ware sites were found in Epirus and Corfu and were dated to between 6400 and 6200 BC. Settlements spread to Albania and Dalmatia on the eastern Adriatic coast between 6100 and 5900 BC. It then arrived in southern Italy at Coppi Navigata on the Adriatic in approximately 6000 BC. After that, the culture spread rapidly north and west to cavern area between the Gulf of Genoa and the Mondego estuary over a 100 to 200 year period, reaching Spain in 5500 BC. 
This was possibly achieved by using seafaring techniques in order to establish colonies along the coast. That's quite impressive that early. Now, where the cardium or impressed ware culture originated from is a mystery. Some suggest that like the sesquil culture, they originated from the Levant, as impressed ware has been found in North Syria, Palestine and Lebanon. Others suggest that not everything originated from the Levant, and this culture may have originated in North Africa, as impressed ware has been found in parts of Egypt. One thing for sure though, older Neolithic cultures like the sesquil were already established in Eastern Greece and Crete, but they were distinct in both style and manufacturing techniques, even though they might have had a slight influence on the cardium culture. Similarly, the Balkans developed their own tradition from the 6th millennium BC, as we shall see in the next episode. But now I want to talk about the Jarmukian culture, 6400 to 6000 BC. This was the first culture in Israel and one of the oldest in the Levant, to make use of pottery. It derives its name from the Yarmouk River that flows near to the type site of Sha'ar Hagulan, which lies at the foot of the Golan Heights, that disputed territory between Israel and Syria. Sha'ar Hagulan was first discovered by Professor Moshe Stekelis in 1949, who first identified this site as part of the Jarmukian culture. With a size of 20 hectares, it was one of the largest settlements in the world at that time, possibly bigger than Jericho. Uh, Jericho was going through a bit of a slump at this time and wouldn't recover until the Bronze Age. Excavations by Joseph Garfinkel between 1989 and 1990 uncovered large courtyard houses of between 250 and 700 square meters in area. That's some big houses. In the middle was a central courtyard that was surrounded by several small rooms. And this feature can still be found in certain traditional societies in the area today. By the late 7th millennium, we had now begun to use what we would call town planning. A three meter wide central street was the main focal point of the settlement. A bit like our own high street today in any village. I wonder if there were any market stalls or shops there. If so, then evidence suggests that people were trading in luxuries such as seashells from the Mediterranean, polished stone vessels made of alabaster or marble, and obsidian blades all the way from Turkey. Could they have come from Katalhöyük, which was still thriving during this period? Trade connections would have extended over 700 kilometers. So we are now extending our horizons and not just getting materials from the next village. Even so, that would constitute quite a few days of walking. Middlemen were probably used to counter the distance. Now, as mentioned above, Israel began to use pottery for the first time. Gone are the pre-pottery Neolithic cultures of the past 2000 years. These pottery vessels come in a variety of shapes and sizes and were used for a number of different purposes. As pottery was used for the first time, the Jarmukian culture can also be given its alternative name of pottery Neolithic. Various finds of Jarmukian pottery were found as far away as Byblos in Lebanon. Uh, 
Art consisted of approximately 70 figurines made of stone or fired clay. The majority of these, like in so many cultures of the period, were female images, often represented as mother goddesses. As usual, the appearance of these figures showed exaggerated features. We definitely haven't got to the stage yet where realism would come into play. You can tell from the face of the figurines that we still didn't know how to do portraiture yet. Most of these figurines are housed in the Kibbutz Sha'ar Hagulan Museum in Israel, but both the Metropolitan Museum of New York and the Louvre in Paris have had 10-year exhibits of objects from this site. Other figurines are housed at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. Why? Now we have to look at the spread of agriculture to the Danube region that happens in 6000. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's in 200 BC, approximately. According to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, archaeologists have debated how farming actually spread to Europe, particularly areas of the Danube in modern-day Romania, Bulgaria and Serbia. New data from teeth of both hunter-gatherers and prehistoric farmers shows that agriculture was introduced to Central Europe from the Near East by colonizers who brought the farming technology with them. The report, published on February 11th in 2013, drew isotopic signatures of strontium from the tooth enamel of people who died in approximately 6200 BC to confirm the information that new people came into the Danube area with their farming technology to replace the existing Mesolithic hunter-gatherers. They didn't learn to use this technology. There were new people with the technology. During this time, the area known as the Danube Gorges was heavily forested with abundance of fish, red deer and wild boar. The bends and twists of the gorge enabled mobile and expanding Neolithic communities to settle in the area, bringing with them wheat, flax, goats and cattle. T. Douglas Price of the University of Wisconsin-Madison explains that, quote, It is useful 
because it suggests another route across the Black Sea or up the east coast of Bulgaria to the Danube for farmers moving into Europe. This contrasts with movement by sea across the Mediterranean or the Aegean Sea, which is the standard picture. End quote. Two questions have intrigued archaeologists. Did the technology arrive with colonizers from Asia, particularly from Anatolia? Or did the technology simply diffuse across the European landscape through networks of local foragers? Price suggests that quote, elsewhere in Europe it is not clear whether it was colonists or locals adopting, end quote. However, studies of strontium from teeth are now helping archaeologists track the movement of ancient people across the landscape. One finding of the study in 2013 is that approximately 8,000 years ago, more women than men were identified as foragers. Possible explanation is that women came to this site from Neolithic farming communities as part of an ongoing social exchange. The overlap of hunter-gatherers and early farmers lasted for 200 years before forager societies were completely absorbed by the beginning of the 6th millennium BC. Let's go to China and the Xing Longhua culture, 6200 to 5400 BC. We catch up with China, see what has been happening with the growth of their Neolithic culture. Now, normally you would associate farming in the Yellow and Yangtze rivers, but there were early stages of farming happening in Inner Mongolia, known as the Jing Longhua culture, after the village of Jing Longhua, located near Chaifeng. Excavations revealed a settlement that contained ruins of 170 houses and more than 30 graves. At the start of the settlement, houses were completely spacious, aligned from northeast to southeast, surrounded by epileptical ditches. Although they continued in that alignment, gradually the area became smaller before they abandoned the alignment altogether and got more haphazard and densely arranged that indicated the prosperity of the people. As for items found, pottery was not of the finest quality. The problem was that it was loosely made, heavily cast, and was not fired very well. Although it did have decorative stripes consisting of cedars, grids, and woven matte patterns, it tended to have a greyish-brown or yellowish-brown exterior and dark grey interior. Okay, so the pottery wasn't any good. What about the rest of the artifacts? Well, excavations revealed that the Qinglongwa culture contained the early earliest genuine jade artifacts known to China so far. Dozens of them were unearthed that showed that people began to be aware of the materials that surrounded them, selecting pale green, yellowish green, milky white or light white materials, and then gaining the knowledge of drilling and polishing them to make exquisite items. This suggests that there was a complete division of labor in this society, this is a hallmark of later Neolithic cultures in different parts of the world. They move away from the egalitarian lifestyle to this division lifestyle. The Xinglongwa culture plays a significant role in the continu continuity of Neolithic cultures at the eastern part of today's Great Wall of China. It helps to determine the position of this culture in its interaction with Neolithic cultures of the Yellow River Valley and promotes the progress of this culture over the whole 
of northeast China. And then we come to the Halaf culture, 6100 to 5100 BC. Most of the story of the Neolithic in the Middle East has focused in the area of the Levant. The Levant is practically Syria, Lebanon, Israel. Things have been a bit quiet further northeast in southern Turkey, northeast Syria and north Iraq since probably the 10th millennium BC when we discussed Gobekli Tepe and assumed that this was the birthplace of the Neolithic. Well, from 6100 BC things are about to stir again and this time it would be permanent. People who would occupy areas of northeast Syria and north Iraq were not originally located there. Previously the idea was that people who were to become known as Halafians were descended from herdsmen who occupied the more mountainous region. But in 1986 Peter Ackermans produced new information about the rise of the Halaf culture. An unknown transitional culture was unearthed in the Balik Valley at Tel Sabi Abyad in northern Syria. It contained 11 layers that demonstrated the Halaf culture was not sudden, but rather a continuous process of cultural changes that occurred originally in northern Syria, but then spread to other regions. The culture itself is named, is named after the site of Tel Halafin, uh, northern Syria, that was excavated by Max von Oppenheim between 1911 and 1927. However, the earliest Halaf material was excavated earlier in 1908 by John Garstang at Saxegötsu in Turkey. Small amounts of Halaf material were excavated in 1913 by Leonard Volley at Karkemish on the Turkish-Syrian border. But the most important site for the Halaf culture is Tel Arpachia, now in the suburbs of Mosul in Iraq. At Tel Arpachia, circular doomed structures known as Thuloi were found that were approached through long rectangular anterooms. These were constructed of mud brick, sometimes on stone foundations that may have been used for ritual use as one contained a number of female figurines. A very common occurrence at the moment. Pottery was produced by specialist potters using a style known as polychrome with geometric and animal motifs. These were possibly produced for export. However, the dominance of locally produced painted pottery in all areas of Halaf sites questions that theory. Halaf pottery could be found across northern Mesopotamia at sites such as Nineveh, Tepe Gavra, Shagar Basar and many sites in Anatolia, suggesting that it was widely used across the region. In addition to pottery, communities made female figurines of clay and produced stamped stone seals that were thought to mark the development of personal property. As for the economy, people practiced what was known as dry farming. This exploited the natural rainfall of the area without having to rely on irrigation like those further south where the area was much drier. So they were able to use these conditions to cultivate emmer wheat, two-road barley to produce their beer and to grow flax to make clothing etc. Cattle, sheep and goats were also kept for various purposes. The Halaf culture flourished for approximately 1000 years until it was either abandoned or 
superseded by a culture further south that we will touch upon very soon. But for now, we will leave it at this point as we approach the start of the 6th millennium BC. Please subscribe to the Fan of History YouTube channel where you can find all our stuff. And please give us an iTunes review if you can. Uh, you can find Fan of History on Facebook. Just search for Fan of History. You can become a patron and support this podcast at patreon.com slash fan of history. And it does need your support. You can find me. My name is Dan Horning. I'm on Twitter at Dan Horning. And I'm on Instagram as Dan Horning, but with an umlaut over the O. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. A new year is full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.